don't talk too much. So talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening. I am Eric John, and before we get into it, I've got to tell you about Yaclub Soda. Listen, Yaclub Soda has been making the best soda in the world for over 100 years, and for those of us living in Rhode Island, we've known about Yaclub Soda forever. Um, actually, I actually live in the town where Yaclub Soda's factory is, and so I've been drinking this soda my entire life. And it is the best. And now you don't have to live in Rhode Island to enjoy this amazing soda. You can go to yachtclubsoda.com and order it for yourself. You can get any of the amazing flavors they have. If you've been listening to the show, you've heard me list them over and over and over again, right? Blue raspberry, orange cream, lemon lime. The, the list goes on and on and on. Go to their website, yachtclubsoda.com, and check out all the flavors for yourself. You can mix and match. Pick whichever flavors you want. It doesn't matter. John will ship it out to you as long as you live within the United States. So go to yachtclubsoda.com, order yourself some of the best soda in the world today. Okay, on the show today, uh, we've got Bill Bartholomew uh, joining me. Um, I met Bill a little while back. Um, uh, actually, I, I think I remember making some pizza art for Bill uh, on the occasion of, I think it was the 100th episode uh, of his podcast. He's very well known here in Rhode Island. Um, uh, he's had an, an amazing podcast he's been doing now for a while, um, has all sorts of interesting people on. And he's also an amazing musician. And so uh, it's been really great getting to know him over the last couple of years a little bit. And we chat often about uh, different things, different topics, different issues that are going on. And uh, he's always great to talk to because he's always um, got a very, very open mind and he's very easy to talk to about anything. So I'm really excited that he's coming on the show today. So, Bill, welcome to the show. What a pleasure to be here. It's nice to have the roles reversed because you've been on Bartholomew Town and you've been on Rhode Island PBS with me. And it's nice to be in the guest chair for a change. Yeah, man. Well, thanks for coming on. I'm really excited to talk to you. I, I have a gazillion questions for you. You know, I know we're limited on time, but I, I'm I'm very happy that you came on. And for people listening, I also just want to say that um, Bill was very helpful to me uh, when I was preparing to do this podcast, and I was preparing for quite a, you know quite a little bit of time. Um, and uh, I really appreciate you just answering questions about technical stuff and um, you know you've you've been super helpful to me. So I, I really appreciate that. And you obviously know what you're talking about. So um, I appreciate it, man. Well, it's, I'm always happy to help. And, you know, there's it's one of those things where it seems like when you're doing a podcast, a lot of people probably don't realize just how much goes into it on the back end. And the way you do see this is how there was this explosion of podcasts over the last couple of years where everybody was like, I'm going to start a podcast. And then you're like, let's see if you get past episode five. You know, <laughs> once you realize like, it's not, I mean, you can just do a Zoom call and hit record, but uh, good luck getting people to listen to that because, you know, that doesn't sound so good blasting through your, your earbuds or in the car or off your phone speaker. So kudos to you for actually making this happen. You've had some great guests. I love the McGowan episode and, um, you know, talking wrestling and uh, hey. Glad to be a part of that crowd. Yeah, man, for sure. I uh, yeah, we had a fun conversation. Um, you know, and I like talking to people about things. You know that 
they're really into, but like, you know, other people might not really know them for that thing, you know, and Dan's a good example, like being, you know, he's a huge wrestling fan, but you know, it's not really what he's known for. So I kind of thought that would be a fun thing to do. Um, And, you know, you're talking about podcasts. I think I read that, you know, 90% of podcasts that are out there are, are inactive, right? So they're like, you know, they're people who started a podcast, did five or 10 episodes, or maybe even 20 episodes, and then they just stopped. So do you think that when it comes to doing a podcast or being a content creator, um, is consistency and perseverance, are, are those the most important things in it being successful? Well, I, I mean, you hit the nail on the head, and I think that they're equally important things to the actual quality of the content itself. So whether you're you're making music, whether you're making art, NFTs, whether you're promoting a business, a brand, newsy stuff, talk stuff, uh, whatever it may be, um, you know, obviously you want to be honing your craft and you want that thing that you're getting out that you're trying to communicate, even if it's just your take on something, uh, even an obscure thing like, you know, season seven of Seinfeld or whatever, you know, whatever your, your podcast is, you want to make sure that that thing is refined and something that you're really proud to present. But yeah, you're totally right. And I think that's the biggest thing that you see in these inactive podcasts or kind of half-hearted social media accounts. It's not executed in a consistent way. And that means it could be the, the day something is released, the time of day, or just the regular occurrence of it. Like, you know, in my case, I started doing podcasts and I would release them on Tuesday and Friday. And then that kind of expanded out where it made more sense for me to do a podcast and then post post it immediately. But I do two, three, four, sometimes five per week. So it's always there in people's feed. So I, I don't do the scheduled every Tuesday morning, 5 a.m. There's going to be a new podcast in your in your um, in your app. But I think that that consistency is in general something that's really important. And you see that in music too. In fact, my strategy as an original artist is kind of shifting in recent times. And I'm about to kind of get into this where the idea of putting out a full album while really important, and it certainly gets you a a specific, um, you know, you get, get a lot of press attention and there's a creative element to it, no question. But for me as a musician now, I'm kind of leaning towards singles and so I've just, I'm about to wrap up. I just recorded 10 new songs and rather than releasing them as an album, I'm going to put out a new song every month for the next 10 months with video, with social media stuff, so on and so forth and experiment with that. And I think if people get into the habit of, oh, it's the first Friday of the month, Bill's got a new song out that you might be able to get people's attention in a way than if you just randomly drop 10 songs at once, Right. So I think that's the key ingredient, you know, as far as like TikTok places like that, it's all the same there. And I'm not very good at TikTok. I'm more of a consumer, but the successful TikTok performers or creators are are posting regularly and with high quality, not necessarily like professional grade, but high quality content. And you will see it grow. You will see things grow. And Um, you'll find your audience and then that audience will tell more people and you want to be there for people just like the six o'clock news or the Sunday morning newspaper or, you know, the afternoon drive show on a talk radio station. You want to make sure you're there for people when they want you. 
Yeah, I think I, I've seen this in the comedy world as well, you know, where for a long time, right, it was always uh, put out an album, put out a, a full length special. Um, and that's kind of how you got and grew your audience. And then um, what a lot of comedians started doing was using YouTube to their advantage, where they would take short, you know, sometimes just minute long clips, um, even 30 second clips of one joke from their special um, and, and putting that out there on YouTube and it getting millions and millions of views, right? Because it's a lot easier to share, a, a, you know, one joke with your friends and stuff than it is an entire comedy special. Um, they're getting back in vogue a little bit, but it yeah. definitely I think that's a really smart approach. Um, let's let's talk about your music a little bit now. How how long have you been? Um, I'm assuming you've played music all your life, but when did you really start, you know, putting out content and performing live? Mm, so yeah, as far back as I can remember, even into elementary school, I was drawn to music and media. You know, really, beat was th those were the two things that I loved, and the perfect amalgamation of those was radio for me. So it's it's kind of all always been there. Um, but I would say, you know, about the time I was in sixth grade, I got a, you know, my, my conga drum and, and really when I was in seventh grade, I joined the high, the middle school band as a drummer and was quickly promoted to the high school band as a middle schooler. So here, here I am, not the best student, uh, very poor athlete, you know, kind of a weirdo in my own way. And I, music came in and suddenly I was excelling. Suddenly I was competing in state competitions. And like I said, I was basically for all intents and purposes promoted to the varsity team um, as a middle school student. So it kind of clicked of like, okay, there's something here that is worth pursuing. And I started a band with some of my friends when I was 16. We played all over Rhode Island. We all ended up going to college together, lived together and played all through college, all the venues in Providence, the Ocean Mist and Matunic. We were your typical college campus band where, you know, we would play and we would get the fraternities and sororities and the athletes and the music kids and everybody to come out and watch us. And then, you know, that started to be not quite satisfying to me because even though we were an original band and we were kind of, I think we were actually really a, a, a unique act at that point um, with what we were doing. I, I had this sense that boy, I, I as a creator, I want to go further than this college band vibe is going to take me. And I ended up linking up with some folks in Providence my senior year of college, um, got some home recording equipment, started writing more complex, if you will, uh, or I guess let's say more experimental music, and started another band that we ultimately all moved to New York together in 2006 with the goal of making it in that Brooklyn independent music community that at the time was just exploding and was the center of the music, the alternative music universe. Bands like the National, Animal Collective, TV on the Radio, the Yeah, Yeah, Yes. I mean, the list went on and on and on of all these bands in our neighborhood that we moved to that were on the world stage. That band lasted about a year in New York, and I decided to pursue a solo career ended up signing a management deal, recording some EPs in pretty big time studio settings and beginning the pursuit of the commercial side of the business. But what always really was the most successful thing for me and was kind of like when I was in middle school and it was like, well, you should be in the high school band because, you know, it's working, like stick with this because it's actually working was always the underground, the Brooklyn underground, the DIY scene, as it was called. 
you know, venues that were in pickle factories or old warehouses, open mics that were held with candlelight. Um, and I ended up leaving my management deal and really fell into that, that underground Brooklyn scene as my epicenter, still with always having an eye on the commercial world. Um, and especially, you know, trying to get songs placed in film and television, which I did, you know, I got some songs on Showtime network. I was on MTV. Um, I ended up having a band called silver teeth that we ended up on vice. And I, I did some substantial touring. I toured in Brazil, like us tours, playing festivals, clubs, the whole thing. And all of that was great. And I'm really glad it happened. But for me, even to this day, I see myself as part of that underground scene and the most authentic version of my music lives there. And again, that doesn't mean I'm exclusively in that world. I, I see myself always trying to reach a broad audience, but it all kind of clicked in Brooklyn. It was, it made sense that that's who I am. I'm not going to be the next Justin Bieber or Ed Sheeran or whatever. Uh, the vast majority of the world will not listen to my music, but I've always had it in mind of who out there is looking for something a little different, something soulful, something experimental, but also something that you can sing along to. And that's my audience. And that's what I've continued to build. Um, and it's a, it's a slow climb in that world. There are peaks and valleys right now. I'm really excited because I'm making new music. Things are going really well in Providence and Brooklyn for me in terms of performing. And I'm always, uh, you know, just, just chasing the next song, chasing the next, moment. And, um, fortunately I have found this, this secondary, or I wouldn't say secondary, this sort of parallel career in media that the two work really well together. And I'm able to not, um, be required to tour around and place, you know, shows in Buffalo just to make a hundred bucks and eat scraps to survive, uh, which is really what the underground music world is for the very most part. What influence, um, you know, because has the the local Providence scene had on you, and and the reason I ask is because you've been very very involved with the local music scene in Rhode Island, and you know, in Providence and and elsewhere. Um, did that also that scene also have an impact on you growing up uh, in Rhode Island, and um, in, in terms of influencing your music and just your your general attitude? Definitely. For me, the Providence scene was always Providence itself growing up in Southern Rhode Island. It was kind of like one of those things where going to Providence was almost like I felt like I was breaking some rule or something like that um, <laughs> to, to be up there. You know, it was, it's not that my parents were isolationists or something like that. It was just all just the people I was around, the world I was around. It was not part of the city at all. And when I started to go to Providence, especially when I had my license, but even before that, I would get you know, my cousin would take me or some, somehow I would end up at these shows. I was blown away. There's still a feeling that I have from that early 2000s, mid 2000s period of Providence, the club scene, whether it was the Met Cafe or the Century Lounge, which today is askew, or of course the living room or the underground scene of bands like Lightning Bolt and, and Chinese Stars, Arab on Radar, these, these incredibly experimental bands that I had never heard anything like in my life. Um, it had a profound impact on me and I knew that I wanted to be in a city. Providence was my first city. Uh, and, and I have such fond memories of that period and it really did influence me, maybe not directly on an artistic line of like, okay, I want to make music just like these people, 
but just in terms of the 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 community that seemed to exist that I wanted to be a part of. And nowadays, you know, Providence, when I first came back to Rhode Island, was in a period where there was these indie folk bands. A lot of guys wearing cowboy costumes and stomping and hooting and hollering. And some of that music was great, you know, it really was. But there was a lot of copycat music as well. And I kind of tried to imitate that a little bit. My partner, Gabriella Rossi, and I and our band Silverteeth, we, we kind of did our thing. And I think we had our own unique lane that we were in for sure in that broader indie folk space, um, really tapping into more traditional country and like kind of a punk ethos and an artistic ethos. But Providence had this, this kind of country club vibe when I first moved back. And I wanted so bad to be a part of it. I wanted in. And... Uh, now, you know, a lot of those bands have gone away. A lot of that mid 2000s indie folk stuff has disappeared. And there's this new era, which I'm so very pleased to be a part of. And we do our songwriter clubs um, here at the loft in, that I live at and work out of in Providence, which is like a, a night that I created where I bring eight artists together. Everybody plays two songs and I draw the order at random during the show. So it's like fast and you get the, the audience stays for the whole time. And what's so great about Providence right now is you have a real diversity of, of types of artists. You have a, in terms of you've got an indie scene, a punk scene, a hip hop scene, a little bit of a folk scene still. You've got a kind of nice metal scene. You've got a rock scene. But we are starting to overlap in a way that reminds me of what I had in Brooklyn, where I would be on a show and I'd play with like three hip hop artists, even though I was playing this kind of acoustic guitar driven into indie folk stuff. So there's this, this moment in Providence now where there's a lot of great acts doing a lot of things in their own lane, but those lanes are converging in different places, both in, in clubs and in sort of DIY warehouse spaces again, and on the internet. And I would say Providence has a profound impact on me right now in a way where I'm no longer looking at it like I want to be in that club because it's going to get me booked at some festival or something like that. Now we're just doing it and everybody's in. It's a very welcoming community. It's very diverse. It's very diverse in terms of, you know, any self-identification and it's also diverse in terms of any music that somebody makes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it, it, I always remember Providence being such a crazy scene and that, that sort of early 2000s time period you're talking about, especially. I mean, that's when, you know, I graduated high school in 2002. So, you know, anywhere from like 98 to 2002, and you mentioned Lightning Bolt and what a crazy band they were. Um, I remember I actually, so obviously we both know about the the Motif magazine, right? Which is a, a very, sure. very successful magazine um, in the indie sort of art scene. I actually wrote... Um, I was a writer for the Motif magazine. Then their the first year it was around. Um, oh, really? Cool. I was too for like a year as well. Yeah, and I I remember I was <laughs> I was gonna write. I wanted to write an article about the Slip. And yeah, so, man, the Bar Brothers now the Slip, the awesome band. They were they're a cult band for sure. Oh, no there was amazing, amazing, and so many great times and memories going to shows. But I remember when I approached Brad uh, Bar about doing uh, an article. Uh, he insisted, he said he wouldn't do it unless I also did an article on Lightning Bolt, um, <laughs> awesome. which which kind of shows the camaraderie right in the local music scene. And um, and also I hadn't heard of them at that time. So it kind of I kind of discovered them at that time. And it wasn't really my style of music, but I appreciated it at the time. You know, it's it was just 
really wild stuff. Um, so, you know, you've had all this success as a musician and um, it's obviously a huge part of your life. When did you decide you wanted to start Bartholomew Town Podcast? Mm. Well, like I had alluded to earlier, I had grown up watching Channel 10, listening to WCBS News Radio 880 out of New York and listening to WBRU who had the 95 second news update. Um, and all of that was always there for me as a huge part of my interests and kind of how I viewed, you know, the world. When I went to college at URI, I started in communications thinking that I was going to become a broadcaster. And after a year, I was like, I got to get out of this. It was like, I hate to say it because it seems really like, like I'm total asshole for saying this, but the classes were, you know, it was very like, um, you know, like, like, like high school-y, there were a lot of like the athletes in there and stuff. And people would be talking while the teacher was talking and making jokes. And I was like horrified. And so I thought, all right, well, that's it. I'm not going to get into broadcasting because you know, I can't handle this, this scene that I'm in at URI. I hate to say it again. I know it sounds like I'm kind of a jerk. But well, no, you weren't, you weren't feeling comfortable. It wasn't, it, it was, you know, it seems so much of it sounds like your experience in middle school and high school and with music especially was a sense of belonging and feeling comfortable. So it, it sounds like maybe it, you just you weren't feeling like it gelled and it wasn't quite your crowd. It wasn't quite my crowd at all. And it felt like very not not serious, like a waste of time. So I switched to political science and I was fortunate that I always knew in the back of my mind, well, I should keep pursuing some element of journalism, because even as either the two paths I was envisioning, one musician or two lawyer, right? The default fallback that I'm sure you've dealt with <laughs> as well. We all have to like pretend we're going to be a lawyer for like, oh, yeah, I took practice years. LSAT tests at one point in my life because totally. I considered it for sure. Totally. So my thought was, all right, I, I got into political science and I loved it. I went all in. I ended up becoming a research assistant. I took classes with the former governor, Sunland. I mean, I was in I loved, loved, loved it. And I took some journalism classes along with that. So I had planted the seed there. But I went to New York, worked for a law firm, thinking I was going to become a lawyer. And while it was parallel, starting, you know, I was in the band that I moved with from New York. And my bosses at the law firm told me, they said, hey, you know, if, if when I had the chance to sign a management deal and kind of start touring and stuff, they were like, dude, you need to do this. Like, you can always go back and be a lawyer. Um, I was working as paralegal. They're like, you can always come back. We'll even have you back. And they gave me a raise right then and there. So I would make a little bit more for my last month to pursue music. So I went in like totally all in on music, had really forgotten about the journalism broadcasting vision that I had once had. But I had still been obsessed with talk radio. Living in New York, I was constantly listening to WFAN, the sports talk station, and WCBS, the news station, like nonstop, like more than music. I was listening to that and reading, you know, blogs like Deadspin or even early Alex Jones. Um, and somehow those were early seeds of like, okay, independent, not stupid. Um, I mean, Alex Jones, obviously, I mean, the guy, I'm talking early Alex Jones. Well, you know, people, <laughs> people, people don't realize how long Alex Jones has been around. And, yeah. uh, cause I know the time period you're talking about, you know, like, and, um, you know, the stuff where, you know, he's sneaking into Bohemian Grove and he's, you know, and, and just his talent as a broadcaster, 
right? And as a personality and all, you know, all of that too. People forget about, you know, that, that there's a long history there before, you know, he really started getting caught up in, you know, some, some more nonsensical stuff. Yeah. The Sandy Hook stuff and even some other stuff as well. But that was, I was listening to that and absorbing it and loving it. And we decided to move back to Rhode Island in 2016. We had met some people from Newport when we were out on the road in, in New Haven, we were playing a show and we met a band from Newport and they're like, come play a show with us up in Newport. And I was like, really Newport. You know, I, I couldn't imagine Newport as like a hub of, of creativity. You know, I barely, I mean, I grew up in Rhode Island. <laughs> I barely knew it as anything other than just like go to the mansions and go, we did the brick alley. Well, I was blown away. So was my partner and we dropped everything and moved to Newport and pursued music there and loved it. It was such a great scene. It was such a great hub to tour from. All of that was happening. But I started listening to WPRO. Then I started calling WPRO every day, every show. William in Newport was my moniker. Oh, that was you? That was me. And I was That's so funny that you know because Petro. You called a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. I I remember. Well yeah, that's crazy. It was amazing. And Dan York and I built a persona as a talk caller, weirdly. And at one point, my my partner said to me, she said, you should start a podcast. And I was like, I don't think I have the energy for that. And I was like, oh, you know, let's do it. So in 2017, I did episode one and I uh, was like with a, with a musician in town uh, named Mallory Day. And it was kind of like a trial balloon. I was like, this is kind of fun. I was like, let's do it for real. So I was like, I bet that uh, if I write to the lieutenant governor, what's his name? I looked it up. I was like, Dan McKee. Never heard of him before. But all right. Let, I bet he's got nothing to do. He'll come. <laughs> you know, I had no idea. No, that's a smart move. And he turned up for the first real episode of the show. And it clicked. It was like, I can do this. I was a huge and still am, but a huge Jim Hummel fan. I became obsessed with the Hummel report. I watched every episode like three times that he ever made. And it blew my mind that independent journalism on the hyper-local level could exist and be as high quality as the stuff he was producing. It truly blew my mind and changed my life, Jim Hummel's work. Um, and, and you know, it just kind of grew in 2018 because it was an election year and I built the platform and candidates started to think, well, this is easy. I can just go talk to some artist in a loft. I mean, how hard are the questions going to be, right? (laughs) Just get some sound bites. And it grew and grew and grew and grew. And by the time we hit the fall of that year, the show was a thing. Did it have the audience it has today? Of course not. But it had a little audience and it was the beginnings of my relationship with the Jim Hummels. Matt Allen had me on his podcast and came on. Uh, again, uh, you, you know, people like uh, Brian Crandall, Ted Nisi, Tim White, they Dan McGowan, of course. McGowan, you know, was really, really critical, uh, it, a major influence of mine as well, following his reporting at Go Local and then Channel 12. I was like, this guy reminds me of Deadspin and WFAN and WCBS and like the young, smart, aggressive, but also likable thing that I had fallen in love with as a consumer in New York. And I was able to kind of insert myself into a little slice of the media world in 2018. And that was the beginning of, for me, I knew, okay, I want to do this now. I need to figure out how I don't want to play stupid shows with the band anymore. I want to only play high quality shows, write high quality music and be, be free of 
the touring nonsensical low end touring and replace that with um with the podcast. So for the first year and a half, I was doing everything from refereeing soccer games to delivering Motif magazine, uh, buying bikes at yard sales, fixing them up, flipping them on Craigslist, you name it. Uh, every side hustle I could think of, I was just trying to make a living to keep the podcast going. And that's really what happened through the first two years of the show um, and, and started getting invites to appear on a lively experiment on PBS through Hummel. And then in July of 2019, as I was pulling into the Newport Folk Festival to attend and, and, and do some volunteer work there and then perform some unofficial after parties, a 401 number appeared on my, my iPhone. I didn't know the number and I had picked it up and it was uh, Neil Larimore, who was then the program director at WPRO. And he said, hey, is this Bill Bartholomew? I said, yeah. Hey, man, we heard your stuff. How would you like to fill in for Dan York tomorrow? And that was that moment changed my life forever. And it gave me the confidence and the opportunity that um that I needed to like make a career out of it, which is still something I'm challenged by. You know, I don't I'm not getting rich off this, believe me. You know, I still have roommates. Uh I still I I'm not making tons of money. Um, well, you're well, sort of like a classical entrepreneur, right? I mean, it's, it, yes. and it's, it's a classic story and it's, it's tough. It's tough being, you know, starting your own thing and doing your own thing and trying to figure out how do I make money off this? How do I make a living off of this? You know, and, and especially something in it that's, that's not your sort of run of the mill business, like running a podcast. Um, you know, it's hard, it's really difficult. Um, and you know, I, I've I've just loved watching you grow and watching your show grow. I've been listening to the show obviously for for many years now, um, and I've really enjoyed it. Um, I guess the the one last question I have for you, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not I'm not planning on having politicians per se on my show. It's just not really something I'm interested in doing. But I've I've, I've of course loved listening to you talk to politicians on your show, and I always wonder is is it hard to strike a balance between like you want to ask tough questions and you know, you, you want to, you want to be tough, but at the same time, um, you know, you, you want to be respectful and you want people to be able to come to want to come back on your show. Is it, is it, is it like a tough balance and a, and a sort of a tightrope to walk there? Or am I imagining that? Is it sort of, is it really not as big a deal? And if you, you know, if you ask a question, maybe they don't like it's an enormous challenge, and anybody who tells you otherwise is lying. Um, the 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 truth is that Dan York says this, and and I think it's accurate. Objectivity in journalism is a goal, not a fact. Um, and look, you know, when I first began, I, I don't know how many hard questions I asked. I'd have to go back and listen. I remember interviewing Joe Trillo in 2018, and he kind of was like, "How much longer are we gonna be here for?" When I started asking some <laughs> fine questions about Trump relations and stuff like that. Um, now it's easier for me. I think the platform has legs of its own that, that candidates and elected officials and, and even quote unquote bureaucrats or influencers, whatever, they all recognize that like, it's a good place to get the word out and, and, and appear just like I'm PRO or something like that, because, you know, it, it's got a, it's got an audience and there's an expectation, you know, it, it, it is hard at, at the beginning of my pursuit 
you know, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no real formal training. I was just listening to talk radio and Jim Hummel and kind of saying, okay, this is what you do. Um, but now it's a little easier now, you know, I I've built these relationships, uh, and whether it's a Democrat, Republican, independent, progressive, libertarian, I think everybody knows who I am for the most part that comes on the show, or if they don't, then, then they're able to find out. And I can ask now much more prying questions than I used to be able to. And I can take real journalistic looks at things, even with people that I personally like, which is happening all the time. You know, there's people that I personally like in Rhode Island politics. They're running for Congress, perhaps in some cases. And I got to take a journalistic look at it. I can't say, well, I like this person or this guy's a nice guy or she's a nice woman or, you know, um, yeah, you can't, you got to be able to separate that. So I hold myself accountable to be knowing that the listeners demand, they, they, they don't need PR. There's already enough inflated public relations garbage out there. At the same time, I want to have fun. You know, I'm not looking to, to uh, I'm not looking to create shock value. I'm not. I'm not looking to just make quick headlines. It's substan I'm looking for substantial conversation. So it is difficult. A lot of people have learned through my analysis and opinion where I stand on certain issues, but that doesn't mean that I won't talk with a completely open mind and even sometimes have my mind changed on certain issues. There are some Republicans now that won't call me back. Mike Chippendale used to be on the show quite often. He's he would be on Bartholomew Town pretty regularly. And he would, you know, I've gone on tours of his district with him. He's driven me around and he's not calling me back right now because I gave him a hard time on lively experiment. At the same time, you know, if I didn't rough him up on lively experiment for something that I felt was completely outrageous, uh, I'd be dishonest to myself. So every once in a while, someone says, well, that guy, I'm not going to talk to him anymore. And you know what? I'd rather have that, even though Chippendale and I disagree on a million issues, probably. At the same time, he and I agree completely on some issues like conservation related and, and you know, land use for solar and things like this. He and I have an identical viewpoint on it. So it's a shame that in some cases, you know, the more aggressive you get, it cancels out everything else, so to speak. But um, the, the, the short answer is, yeah, it's hard. It's the thing is moderating the debates for governor, Congress, lieutenant governor, treasurer, secretary, whatever it was last year on PRO. That was the highest profile position I'd been put in. And I knew that that opportunity was going to not only be really important for the states to, to have a window into the candidates. And I wanted to moderate the debates differently than channel 12 or 10 or pro Joe NPR. But I also knew that it was going to be a major challenge to myself and to everybody else to, to see, I can do it objectively. And you know what? I walked away from those debates with phone calls from Ashley Kalis and McKee's people, uh, from the Fung and Magaziner people, you know, from the Gokayan and the Matos people. And when both sides say, hey, thank you, great job, um, it makes me feel like, okay, I've got nothing to worry about, that you can my personal viewpoint can be separated from the job of informing the public and being an unbiased observer. And I am still okay with calling things out that I find is ridiculous. Now, this whole cat litter box thing, uh, you know, that story where like kids who were wearing cat ears, there was this hoax that 
they had, like the schools were putting litter boxes out for them to go to the bathroom. There are people in the media pushing that. You saw it on Twitter. Some people, I'm like, what are you guys doing? That's crazy. <laughs> like, I don't need to stay unbiased. There's, you know, first, these are kids that are probably getting picked on. They have minimal identification. They're probably not in sports or music or drama or debate team. And they're wearing cat ears as a way to identify themselves. And you're going after them. So I feel like I can both have that kind of an opinion, but also stay in the middle. And if I'm covering news, if it's a forest fire, I can, I can call anybody and get the information without them saying, Hey, I don't like you because you talked about, you know, some culture war issue like three months ago. Well, it's, I mean, it's definitely tough being out there and putting your opinions out there and your thoughts out there. I mean, you, you're certainly not going to make everybody happy and that, you know, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, definitely. and, uh, you know, one, one thing I've just really loved bill is just watching your success. And I love, I love watching other people succeed. It gets me motivated to try to work really hard. And especially when I know people are working really hard, especially starting this podcast, just knowing how much goes into it and how much time it takes and all that stuff. Um, you know, I, I know that you're working incredibly hard. So, um, I, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. It's really great talking to you. Um, why don't you tell the people who are listening where they can find the podcast and, uh, also where they can find your music. Yeah, sure. So the podcast is available at ripodcast.com. And from there, you'll be able to click either on every episode. There's like 550 episodes now. Uh, and they're all posted there going back to those early episodes I described, which I, I think I would, I would have a panic attack if I listened to now, knowing <laughs> it's still available publicly. But, um, that's one way, of course, on Spotify, Apple, wherever you're listening right now to Eric's podcast, you can find it there. And on Saturdays at three o'clock on WPRO, the podcast airs as a radio hour over over the AM FM signal. And um, I usually take segments from whatever I've done that week and add a little bit of commentary or intros, outros. So it's kind of a semi-unique presentation then. Uh, music, really the same thing, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, just it's under my name, Bill Bartholomew. I'm going to be releasing new singles uh, very soon. We'll probably have the first one up in the month of June. And you'll find my album that I released last year, Beige, on all those platforms. Beige, I was fortunate enough to be in a couple of, um, you know, best of 2000 or 2022 top 10 lists and won one of the Motif Awards, the Writer's Choice Awards for that album this year as well. So, um, you can give that a listen. I play all the instruments I recorded here at my loft and yeah, onwards and upwards and keep up your great work. I'm so psyched. We need more dynamic podcasts and, and voices in this, in this market. And you're a great one. You've got a, a really interesting and fun background yourself. You bring a small business perspective. I know we've talked about some really important, um, I wouldn't even call them political. I'd call them like saving the human species issues, you know, <laughs> looking at the, you know, the fed and looking at some of those critical issues that if we're right. really honest about it, you know, um, that's, that's a space that is, needs more attention as well, but even just through your art and through your entrepreneurial and, and small business mind, it's great to have your, your voice as a part of the, the media, um, ecosystem here in Rhode Island. Well, thanks, Bill. That means a lot coming from you, man. And um, and I, I hope you'll come on the show again because I, I, I could talk to you for hours. Anytime. And I'd love to have you on as well. I'll actually be reaching out and we'll try to get you on uh, 
to talk about this podcast sometime either end of May or beginning of June is what I have on my I have a maniacal system that makes <laughs> make, would make anybody's brain explode looking at my legal pad of names and when I think they should come on. So well, I appreciate that, me. man. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right, brother. Thanks. This is the Just Listening Podcast. I gotta go. Go where? Where we just got I got that thing. I gotta go. With pizza artist Eric John. Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together. Okay, this way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like, share, and subscribe.